I'm Beth. And I'm Jimmy. And we're the Talk to the Hand podcast. Hello, Beth. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. We have been absolutely blown away by some of the feedback we've had in. Oh, it's been amazing. Really positive, hasn't it? It has. And we're so grateful for those of you who've tuned in to listen to our podcast really overwhelmed by some of the feedback we've been getting. If you want to drop us a message and give us some feedback on the podcast, you can contact us on talktothehandpodcast at gmail.com. And that talk to is a number two, not the word. So thanks again for all of that feedback. And we are going to move on to our next episode. So who have you got? You're going to take the lead on this one, Jimmy, aren't you? So who have you got for us today? This week, we'll be talking about Robbie Williams. Ooh. What do you think of Robbie? like and dislike him at the same time okay yeah i think what he's achieved is amazing but some of his actions i haven't always liked his um attitude towards life okay so as we go through the story of robbie williams there were a couple of aspects that Mm. made me think again about some of those actions and not to give too much of a spoiler he was a very young man when he made the actions that some of them were, were a bit questionable. Yes. Let's rewind to the 90s. Born on February the 13th, 1974, Robert Peter Williams was the son of Janet and Peter Williams, and he grew up in a modest household where music played a pivotal role in shaping his early years. Raised in the Burslem district of Stoke-on-Trent, Robbie's upbringing was marked by a fusion of working-class values and supportive family environment. His parents' appreciation for music exposed him to a diverse race of genres, igniting a spark with him from a young age. The melodies that filled his home planted the seeds for what would later become an illustrious musical career. His early interest in music quickly developed into an art and passion, leading him to participate in various local talent shows and school performances, His family and friends recognised his star potential, often encouraging him to showcase those talents. And it was during these formative years that Robbie Williams' unyielding determination and confidence in his own abilities began to take shape. His experiences in local talent shows not only honed his performance skills, but instilled in him a sense of ambition that would serve as a driving force behind his pursuit of a music career. In 1990, at the age of 16, Robbie's life took an electrifying turn that would alter the course of his future forever. Buoyed by his innate talent and audacious spirit, he decided to audition for a newly formed band called Take That. This pivotal moment marked his official entry into the music industry and set the stage for his meteoric rise to fame. And that's honing in on that 16 years old. If we can remember what we were doing when we were 16, could you imagine having that opportunity and doing that and being pushed into the limelight like that, like that at 16. There's a number of times I'll probably think this during the story, but at 16, I was a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> so to think at 16 years old, he's yeah. going off to start what would become such a, a global mm. phenomenon. Mm. It's pretty impressive. Yes, I agree. So Jane Collins was a talent scout and was aware of Robbie Williams. She recommended him to the management and casting team of Take That. He then auditioned and impressed the band's creator and manager, Nigel Martin-Smith. He was asked to become a member of Take That in 1990. Take That were a group consisting of Gary Barlow, Mark Owen, Howard Donald, Jason Orange and, of course, Robbie Williams. 
Robbie was very much a showman within the group and his presence also introduced an edgier element to Taylor's image. His bold fashion choices, distinctive tattoos and confident demeanor contrasted with the more polished and wholesome image that boy bands of the time typically projected. And that's where I had my issues with Robbie because I was one of those typical, like what the boy bands were made to look like. Yeah. So anything more edgy, I was like, oh, I don't know. And I don't think at the time we'd have looked to take that and thought they were particularly edgy. No. But Robbie was the edgy within, person yeah. within Take That. Yeah. So in 1991, the group signed a recording contract with RCA Records and released their debut single, Do What You Like. Take That's debut album, titled Take That and Party, was released in 1992. The album achieved significant success and played a pivotal role in establishing the band's popularity. It reached number two on the UK Albums chart and was eventually certified as a multi-platinum album. The album's success was propelled by the popularity of several hit singles including A Million Love Songs, I Found Heaven and Critically Magic. However, it was the release of their second album, Everything Changes, that Take That's trajectory reached unparalleled heights. The album debuted at number one on the album's chart and spawned a series of chart-topping hits, including Pray, Relight My Fire and Babe. These songs combined emotional lyrics with catchy hooks, transcending the pop genre and connecting with fans. Williams repeatedly fell out with manager Martin Smith over Robbie's use of alcohol and cocaine during this period. By 1994, the drug use had got worse and Rob Williams nearly overdosed the night before a performance at the MTV Europe Music Awards. Their third album, Nobody Else, debuted at number one on the album's chart and included singles Sure, Back For Good and Never Forget. At the time, Robbie was still struggling with alcohol and drug abuse. I think the rest of the group had got a bit fed up of it by now. And you could understand that if you've got Gary Barlow sort of taking it all serious, he, he would have been ambitious about the band uh, right from the go because of, obviously, his musical background as well. So to have someone that was really potentially going to destroy it... Well, Williams was becoming more erratic and he, he started not attending rehearsals and things like that, which was becoming a frustration for the rest of them. So Gary Barlow and Jason Orange spoke to the group's manager about it and he joined them to confront Robbie. Meanwhile, Robbie himself was getting fed up with the constraints of the group's music and his lack of influence to change it. He started having his own musical ideas. Yeah. But I guess from the management perspective, they had a, a package of proposition that was working, so why would they listen to it? In 1995, Robbie Williams shocked the world by leaving the group. So speaking to Scott Mills for Radio 2 years later, Robbie said, I think I was in the middle of a nervous breakdown, my first of many. All the information going into the computer had made the computer overload. Things weren't great at home. Things weren't great with my job. And then I was new to this phenomena of extreme fame. I was doing my GCSEs, which I failed at, to then all of a sudden being in Japan and having 3,000 fans outside. And then that being the case everywhere that we go. It was unsafe and it was surreal. And that mixed with what I was ingesting to cope with my life and the way that my body and mind reacts to it didn't mix well. So I felt like I was in some sort of burning building and needed to get out. That's how I felt at the time. And then I was like, okay, I'll do this tour and then I'll leave. And they actually went, actually, if you're going to leave, can you go now? Mm. See, when you put it like that, you feel emotion for him and actually understand how he would have been feeling and why he was like, 16, doing his GCSEs, but going off to Japan, or failing his GCSEs, going off to Japan and having all those 3,000 fans just following you around. 
Yeah, and I think if you think at the time, he was adopting coping mechanisms, which was the drugs and alcohol. Mm. And that wasn't working for him. One of the things he also later said was the first thing he'd do in the morning would be to empty the bottle of wine that he'd fallen asleep over two hours earlier and taken a line of coke because he couldn't get up without it. Mm. So this is a guy, a young guy, that probably felt he needed support. Yeah. And at the time it was, he lashed out by saying he was leaving the group and they said, well, can you go now? Yeah. It was something that the rest of the group thought about later and we'll, we'll cover how they reflected yes. on yeah. that in later years. Yeah. So with Robbie set to leave the group, he took the drastic step of contacting all the major newspapers in the UK, telling each of them that they had the exclusive that he was leaving <laughs> take that. Oh dear. The impact of Robbie's action was immediate and seismic. The news spread like wildfire, leaving fans in shock and media outlets scrambling to cover the sensational story. The emotional toll on both Robbie and the remaining members of Take That was palpable. The realisation that the band was breaking apart was bittersweet as fans mourned the loss of a beloved ensemble while Robbie's solo journey was about to begin. And as I look back on it now, the thing that's most shocking is he was 21 while all that was going on. Mm-hmm. Now Robbie and Gary had once been best mates, but now they were at loggerheads. And we'll come back to that again a bit later on, but at the time, Robbie branded Gary as a clueless banker, or something that rhymes with banker. And he said that Take That had all the creativity of mentally unstable morons. He also said he hated the music. So in 1996, the remaining members of Take That split up. And that year, Oasis was one of the headline acts during Glastonbury. During Oasis's performance on June 24th, 1995, lead singer Liam Gallagher walked off stage after only a few songs because he had a sore throat and vocal strain. This left the band without a lead singer in the middle of their set. The rest of the band, including Noel Gallagher, continued to play. And as they did continue to play, Robbie Williams, who was attending as a spectator, spontaneously decided to join Oasis on stage. Now, he was known for his cheeky and spontaneous nature, and he saw an opportunity to engage with the crowd and make a memorable moment. Robbie Williams sang Oasis hit song Cigarettes and Alcohol alongside Noel Gallagher. Despite being impromptu, the performance was very well received by the audience, and Williams seemed to enjoy the moment. I remember this, yeah. This is like watching it back then, you'd be like, oh my god, you know. Absolutely. And yeah. I think the thing was at the time, Tell you That obviously had a huge, huge fan base, but from a Glastonbury type audience, mm. they wouldn't have mm. been especially popular. But now that he's up there performing with Oasis with his newfound attitude, it did change mm. how the, the perception of Robbie at the time. But a clause in his Take That contract prohibited him from releasing any new material until after the group was officially dissolved, but he did succeed in getting released from that contract with BMG. So in June 1996, he signed with Chrysalis Records and began his solo career with a cover of George Michael's Freedom, which debuted in number two in the charts. He released Old Before I Die as the first single from his new album, Life Through a Lens. Yes. The fourth single from the album, though, was the big breakthrough. Robbie released Angels and his solo career had really taken flight. Up until this point, Gary Barlow, the Take That member who Robbie had fallen out with, he'd been ahead in their competitive solo careers. He'd earned a reported six and a half million fortune from his songwriting royalties and after his debut single Forever Love hit number one, he responded to Robbie's many, many insults by suggesting he was jealous. Everything changed after Angels. Robbie won three Brit Awards and sold six million records while Gary was struggling for sales before being dropped by his record label. At the time, Gary was heartbroken. He said, I can imagine the chat they'll be having in Robbie Land tonight. 
the cheers, wolf whistles and belly laughs. There's no question now, mate, you're the winner, hands down. But Robbie showed no mercy and continued to hammer Barlow at any opportunity. He later said, my problem has always been with Gary. It was always with Gary. I wanted to crush him. I wanted to crush the memory of the band and I didn't let go. You know, even when he was down, I didn't let go. In 1999, Robbie Williams signed a record deal with Capitol Records for the United States as he aimed to break into the American music market. Breaking into the US market proved to be a big challenge for Williams. The American music scene was already saturated with established artists and he faced the additional hurdle of being a British artist with a style that might have been different from what was mainstream at the time. As part of his efforts to establish himself there, Williams released the album The Ego Has Landed in 1999. This album served as a compilation of selected tracks from his previous albums, including Life Through a Lens and I've Been Expecting You. It was designed to introduce his music to the American audience and create a starting point for his career there. While the ego has landed generated some interest and garnered a small following in the United States, Robbie Williams did not achieve the level of mainstream success he enjoyed in other parts of the world. Despite promotional efforts and performances, he struggled to gain that traction in that market. A feud with Oasis started in 2000 when Noel Gallagher was challenged about Oasis going from their working class roots and hanging out with cool celebrities like Robbie. He said when they performed with Robbie, he wasn't seen as cool, but as a fact answer from Take That, Robbie called Noel a mean-spirited, nasty little dwarf. And when Oasis released their poorly received album, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants that year, Robbie sent the band a funeral wreath. The wreath bore the message to Noel Gallagher, RIP, I heard your latest album with deepest sympathy, Robbie Williams. And that's just antagonistic, isn't it? But he did have that. If you look, he had the, the feud with Barlow. He had mm. the feud with Oasis. Mm. And quite often when you're not happy within yourself or you do have some of those yeah. demons, it does trigger you to lash out in mm. other directions. Mm. And I think that's what was happening at the time. While that escalated the dislike, it certainly didn't help when Liam began dating Robbie's ex-girlfriend, Nicole Appleton. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember. So Liam publicly threatened to break Robbie's nose. So at the Brit Awards, Robbie offered to fight Liam and offered him £100,000 wager. It went on and on, and there's, there are still jibes made to this day between them. In fact, the dislike of Robbie is about the only thing the Gallagher brothers do agree on these days. Robbie topped the album charts again in August 2000 when he released Swing When You're Winning. In 2002, he signed what's still the biggest UK record deal, an £80 million contract with EMI. Escapology was the fifth studio album by Robbie, released on November the 18th, 2002, and again landing straight at the top of the album charts. The album contained tracks such as Feel, Come Undone, Something Beautiful, Sexed Up. Over the next few years, there were plenty more albums, a Greatest Hits album, Intensive Care, Rude Box, and Reality Kill the Video Star, and all were commercially successful. Gary Barlow had been dealing with a lot of personal issues and had been somewhat out of the limelight. In 2006, he decided he wanted to have a Take That reunion without Robbie. He did reach out to Robbie and invited him to a hotel he was staying at while he was in LA, but the meeting didn't go well and lasted about 10 minutes. However, they did end up meeting again at Robbie's home and they put all the ill will to bed. Gary later said, living with that kind of feud isn't right. The chat was like an exorcism. Robbie felt that for the last year of Take That, he was crying out to every one of us. In the end, he left, and we handled that badly. We let him leave the fold, and no one looked after him. Robbie was barely 21. Yeah, so there's that realisation that they could have done more for him. 
And it's true to, to say that the, the other members of Take That felt the same, but if you were looking at their defence, they were all quite young lads too, maybe not as young as, as Robbie was, but they were still quite young lads to take that kind of responsibility mm. for someone. Mm. So four years after Take That got back together, Robbie did rejoin the group, and he then wrote a song with Barlow called Shame, which focused on their broken relationship and eventually them sorting things out. Robbie did part from the group again, but thankfully it was on good terms this time, and he still occasionally writes and performs with his old friends. Now living in Kensington, London, Robbie has over 77 million in record sales and has won more Brit Awards than anyone else in history. He suffered mental illness, obesity, self-esteem issues, alcoholism and substance abuse throughout his life. And while there have been plenty of high-profile relationships he's had, including Spice Girl Mel C, he began dating American actress Ada Field in 2006. They married in Beverly Hills in 2010 and they have four children. And while he shares glimpses of the family life on social media and interviews, he's also expressed the importance of maintaining a level of privacy for them. The life of Robbie Williams embodies a remarkable journey of resilience, artistic evolution and personal growth. From his early days as a member of Take That to his triumphant solo career, Williams' unwavering spirit and ability to transform challenges into opportunities have left an indelible mark on the music industry and popular culture. Beyond the spotlight, his roles as a husband and father underscore his capacity for love, growth and human connection. Robbie Williams' life story is a testament to the transformative power of determination, creativity and the unbreakable spirit of an artist who continues to evolve and captivate the hearts of his fans. And that is the amazing story of Robbie Williams. Mm, Well, Jimmy, you're right, aren't you? Because at the beginning, I was saying about he was always someone that I'd love to hate. You know, some of his actions annoyed me. I didn't like all the tattoos. I'm not a tattoo person. Um, and and t- t- in full disclosure, you were a boys' own girl. I was a boys' own girl, <laughs> yes. Um, but, yeah, so I was never that. But then to look back on it, peel away at those layers and think of him as a 16-year-old, a 21-year-old, all the drug abuse, when he's you know not knowing what to do but wanting to leave the band, um, the mental health side of it as well, and not having that help. And like you said, the band, the other members of the band were also a similar age, but it's, it's other help that obviously he didn't get from people that would have been in a position to help him. So I think, right. I think sometimes the management of those bands are too fixated on what that band image is. From their point of view, their job is to complete the package and to sell the package. And that's what I think they were doing. So they had a successful formula. It was working mm-hmm. very well. Take that word the biggest band of their type anywhere at the time. And it was going very, very well. And what they would have wanted is all the members to just conform. And Robbie was never a conformist. He was someone who wanted to tread his own path. So one of the suggestions, when I talked earlier on about him becoming frustrated with the lack of influence he had in the band's direction, he wanted them to dabble in a bit of hip hop in their songs. Now, that feels Mm. like a ludicrous suggestion. Mm. If you look back at Take That, the audience they had, Mm. they were not crying out for hip-hop records Mm. from Take That, so Mm. they would have lost their own fans, and they certainly didn't have the credibility to make any inroads on the hip-hop market. So that would have been career suicide for Take That. But as a 21-year-old who thought he knew better, as we all did at that age, and some of us Mm. still do now, (laughs) it was something that he believed he had a valid opinion on, and it was ignored. So for whatever reason it was ignored, as far as he was concerned, he was being ignored 
he didn't want to play by the rules, I guess. And if you think of Gary Barlow, he would have been someone I imagine who was much more conformist. Mm. Uh, so I could see why their once close friendship would have mm. had fractious, would have become fractious mm. as they went along. With any sort of partnership, you have someone that is fully focused and someone that's not, the cracks will appear. Mm. Well, it becomes a frustration for both of them. It, from mm. Gary's point of view, it would have been, well, I'm going to rehearsals every day, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, why don't you have to do it? Mm. From Robbie Williams' side, is well, why does Gary get to make all the decisions? Mm. Because, you know, as the main songwriter of the group, um, and even if you look back to very early days of Take That, the song A Million Love Songs. Yeah, yeah. So Gary had written that when he was 16 yeah. and had recorded a version of it. And I think it was that song that actually brought him to their manager's attention for when Take That did come about. Yeah. And when they released the song, it was almost the precise copy that Gary Barlow oh, had originally yeah. recorded on his own with a few backing, with backing vocals added for mm-hmm. the Take That members. Again, from Robbie's point of view, who was co-lead singer with Gary, Mm-hmm. That would have become quite frustrating for him as well, I would imagine. Yeah. Why is Gary getting all the attention? Yes, if if he because he was that way inclined mm. to think like that. Other people might be like, "Oh, it's a good song. It's a means to an end." But he was more than that. But you look back and you think, at the time, I guess Robbie didn't have the songwriting credentials that Gary did. But as time went on, Robbie wrote some of the most successful songs in the Mm. British charts during that Mm. period, during the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, yeah. If you think of uh, the year 2000 when the millennium came in, it was Mm. Robbie's song that was constantly on play and that was a very smart move to write a song for the millennium that year. (laughs) Definitely, definitely changed my opinion on the whole, on him as a person and actually picturing his situation or imagining how it would have been, put myself Mm. in that situation as that, yeah, being empathetic Mm. towards him thinking of how old he was, thinking of what I was doing at that age, the pressure that he would have been under, the lack of help he would have got at that time. Absolutely. he was going through that. Absolutely. And I think if you look to where his life has gone mm. now, life with his wife and four yes. children, yeah. he seemed in a good place. And when I have seen him pop up for, for concerts mm. and interviews and, and that kind of thing, he seems a much more mature character, as you would expect for someone of, of, yeah. of his age. But... He's had a, a challenging road to get there. He's mm. gone through a lot. He's had a number of demons that he had yeah. to face all, along the way, and he's managed to face them, and he's come out the other side smiling. And mm. I do think it's nice that when you're in your teens, you do have experiences with some of your friends that they go on to form part of your life. You know, yeah, some of those experiences are the, the best experiences you'll ever have in your life. When I look back to my teens, I don't speak every day to the people I was hanging around with at the time. But I would hate to think that I couldn't speak to them because mm. we'd fallen out. Mm. So I think it's mm. great that they've managed to build those bridges. Yes, definitely. That's good. Thank you, Jimmy. That was very insightful. No problem at all. Good stuff. Thank you very much for joining us again. Just want to give a special thank you to all of those of you who have contacted us to tell us what you think of the, the podcast. We're grateful that the feedback has actually mm, been definitely. extremely positive. Mm. But if you do have any queries or comments or anything you want to ask us, myself or Beth, please do get in touch with us. So you can get us on Twitter at TalkToTheHandPod with the two being the number two or you can get us on email TalkToTheHandPodcast at gmail.com and we'll do our very best to get back to you. Thanks very much for being part of it. So Beth, next week it's you taking us on a journey. It is, yeah. Very interesting person. So we look forward to that for next week. So until then, Talk talk to to the the hand. Hand.